All right. Welcome, ladies, to the final week. Welcome back. Great job studying Isaiah in the summer. Good, good job. We can do hard things. You guys killed it. I have reason 40 of why women's ministry is better than men's ministry. I just got a text from one of you that said, I love your top. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You know who you are. But at the same time, women can be stinkers. One of you actually either did text me or wanted to text me during my talk just to see if it would throw me off. That was a couple weeks ago. You also know who you are. (laughs) So, you know, you win some, you lose some. But Um, Okay, guys, we're finishing this up. Isaiah in six weeks. It was no joke. Um, So much I could say about it. But one, the one thing I want to say is this is why we study the Bible in community. Because it helps us read what we otherwise wouldn't read. It helps us stick with it, even if we fall behind. Uh, it, It helps us learn from one another when we would maybe not see an obvious application. So, um, you know, you guys are going to forget most of what I say, which is a very <laughs> sad thought, but that's true. Like, who remembers a sermon from a year ago? Almost nobody, right? But what does stick is God's living and active word. And what else sticks is God moving through the other saints that you sat in a circle with um, for the last five, six weeks. Those are the things that, that go into our souls and, and do the work that brings glory to God. So I'm excited to finish strong with you guys tonight. Um, after we wrap this up, we are going to, and in the most fitting way, we are going to worship. Lauren's going to lead us through a couple songs. Um, so for the last month and a half, guys, we have followed Isaiah to these summits, so to speak. And what I wanted you to feel, what I experienced was that as the study moved on, our hope grew each time, right? We had this intro in the throne room. We bottomed out in the book of judgment in week two, and it was hard and we had to get scrappy. And then from there, the hope just grew and it grew and it grew. Well, this week, what did we see? Well, we saw a ton of contrast. Isaiah used this teaching skill of teaching by contrast as we looked back at the early chapters, the days that described the chapters that described the days of exile, and he contrasted it with the good news of what our future holds. So to see how good our future hope really is, here's actually where I think we need to start. Okay, guys, I actually think one more time we need to go back and talk about the book of judgment. I think one more time we need to go back and talk about those hard chapters. And so actually, this is what we're going to talk about for the first couple minutes, guys. We saw by looking at contrast this week that sin makes a mess. But more specifically to the book of Isaiah, as we're looking to wrap a bow around this, what we see from the book of Isaiah is that distrust leads to a mess or leads to chaos. So the problem that was presented to us in the book of Isaiah was disbelief. It was a lack of trust. Now we got so deep into this book, guys, that this is actually a helpful time to kind of lift our gaze a little bit 
and make sure that we can make some good summary statements. So for all of this talk we did about the ways that Isaiah's people failed, the way that we failed, I think that the best way to sum it up is to say that it was a lack of trust, disbelief. And so the question to start us off is where did their where did their lack of trust lead them? And as we talked kind of about the summit language where we'd get to a high point and we'd say, look, do you see this? You gotta see this. Well, actually tonight, I think we need to take in a panoramic view at a couple different points. We're gonna see so much from from these summaries of Isaiah that we need a full panoramic. And so where did their lack of trust lead them? Well, we read this. The cities are burned down and empty, right? This is a description of exile. Guys, picture this. They're they're burned down, they're empty, they're desolate, they're war ravaged, they're abandoned. Are you picturing it? Guys, you can actually feel not just the mess, not just the chaos of those scenes, but actually the barrenness. When I say barrenness, I I mean emptiness. I mean an absence of life. We read that there was foreign kings ruling over God's people, right? We talked about the bad guys of the story was both, both Babylon and Assyria at different times and to different parts of God's people. Foreign kings ruling over them, We read descriptions of God's people as tree stumps. And if you remember, we talked about how they were cut down with an ax. An ax in God's hand, the ax, it just makes these rough, messy, almost like indiscriminate cuts, sweeping cuts. Think rough, think extensive, just a cutting down. Why? Why such a dark scene? Because the people of God did not trust God. Their failure to trust that God's promises were true led an entire nation to unravel. Their failure to trust that God would do as he said to do led them all the way to the point of exile, of deportation. So picture it, guys. Picture millions of people a solemn march away from home. We have to actually remember that this truly happened before we can understand the goodness of this last week of study. Sin makes a mess. Sin leads to chaos. Disbelief leads to chaos. I think that we know this. Right? I think that we understand that sin makes a mess. We know the wages of sin is death. We know that sin separates. We know that sin has consequences. I mean, all we really have to do, guys, is to look around our world, right? And it's a quick nod. We're like, totally, we all agree with that. All you have to do is look around. You see evil, you see rebellion, you see disorder, you see chaos. But maybe our question as we wrap up Isaiah is... Do we believe that concept to be true in our own lives? Do we really believe that a lack of trust in the Lord, that sin makes a mess in our own life? Or are you like me sometimes and you're so busy looking back at Isaiah's kinsmen, 
and looking at the mess that they were making or looking around at the people in your own life or even in your own home. And I'm so busy understanding that, wow, sin is making a mess in their life. But I'm not actually believing it on a more personal level. And so guys, maybe we didn't see it coming because I didn't, but actually even though this is supposed to be the happiest of the happy news, do we actually see that our very first like pause or application this week is to bravely step into confession and repentance? The thing is, is that we will miss opportunities for confession and repentance on repeat if we are merely looking around at other people. If we're looking around this room or we're looking around our home or we're looking around our town, it's not hard to find someone else who is out sinning you. And when we do that, it's pretty easy for our spirits to kind of feel eased. And what happens is then we stifle an opportunity for confession. It stifles that humble and contrite spirit that we found in day five this week. So if, if looking around doesn't bring us to a point of confession, if, if looking around, if just thinking about Isaiah's day doesn't do anything to help us tremble at God's word, then what are we supposed to behold? What will make us more apt to confess and to shake off sin? We know this answer because every single week we have gone back to Isaiah's vision in the throne room. What did Isaiah see? What did he see that prompted confession? He saw the Lord. He saw the thrice holy God. And when he saw him in his splendor and in his majesty, his natural response when he saw the holiness of God was, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. We are to behold God as Isaiah did. So guys, do we really believe that sin has consequences? Let's be specific. How about our unclean lips? Our sharp words, our white lies, our sarcasm, our complaining. Our unclean lips like Isaiah, but how about our unclean mind? How about our unclean behaviors, our unclean thoughts? Ladies, it would be amiss to to breeze through this whole book that we're saying is about hope if we don't talk about how important it is that when we see God and his holiness, we should want to confess We should want to step into that light because in that moment we see how perfect he is, how unique he is, how there is none like him. And we fall in line behind this prophet. And we bring our sin out into the light. This instructed me so much because I didn't see it coming at the end of the book. It didn't seem like it was going to fit into this nice little bow that we are going to tie on here. The hope that was supposed to grow each week, I was like, oh goodness, we have to talk about 
having a humble and contrite spirit. We have to talk about trembling at God's word. That kind of kills the mood. But man, guys, if we wait to repent for when we feel like it, I don't know that we will. So what if we took this invitation before we end this study as we behold God's holiness and we sense that we're unclean in our lips, and our minds? Ladies, what is it for you? Is it unforgiveness towards somebody? Is it sexual sin? Is it compromise? Selfishness. We say, woe are we. We have unclean fill in the blanks. And then we watch God do what only God can do. So our question at this point, guys, is do we believe that there is more goodness ahead on the other side of confession and repentance? The whole the whole five days, all of what we studied at the end of Isaiah was saying, there's more goodness coming, right? Like that's the big idea. If we had a, a big idea, there's more goodness coming. But specifically from right here, guys, do we believe that there's more goodness on the other side of confession and repentance? Because that's the promise that we have. Like if you think you're living the good life right now, the times when I think I'm living the good life, but I have not stepped into the light with my sin, I haven't confessed it to some of you or to my husband, and then I am not believing that God is good on his word, that actually life is better. There's more goodness ahead when I have renounced those sins and left them behind. Let's not fall into that unbelief that sin is better left unspoken of. Let's not fall into the unbelief that sin actually is pretty inconsequential. It's a heavy start to our happy week, guys, that sin brings chaos. But here we go. Here's our good news. God brings restoration. We saw this all week, right? Sin makes a mess, but the good news is that God has provided the solution, the happy ending. God brings restoration. But guys, it's not just that God is gonna restore goodness, but the redemption that came through Jesus through Jesus has actually opened up a way for God to reverse all that sin has ruined. Okay, so it's not just gonna be that God is bringing things back to a state of goodness. He's gonna do so much more than that. He's actually gonna reverse all that sin has ruined. And the idea for this, it's stronger than the idea of restoration, guys. The word is consummation. And it's kind of awkward, right? The word, yeah, you guys are making some funny faces. My friend said that I couldn't put the word consummation in the study because I tend to put it in every study, which is not that true. But she said I could talk about it one week and I think that this is the week. This idea of consummation means that something is brought to completion. Something is brought to perfection. That's actually the trajectory of God's kingdom is that we're not just going back so that things are restored and put back, but something more complete, something even better. This idea that our, our best days are ahead of us. And this is what we saw, guys. So can I show you where I saw this idea of God 
God having this plan to reverse all that sin has ruined. So again, I'm saying, guys, look, come to this high point, look with me, behold, but it's a panoramic because we have so much to see. Isaiah put so much in these last couple chapters of his book. So from this panoramic, guys, what we see is the one big story, the Bible's big story. And throughout this week, we were tying together all of these things. There, there was this, all these details that came together from smaller stories of the Bible that converged in our text this week. So one of those was this topic of glory. We saw glory throughout the whole study. So go back to those first chapters, guys. We heard about darkness and gloom. Remember hearing about our sin sickness. The land was desolate, war ravaged. We already talked about these, right? But now all of those things have been replaced with glory and light and splendor. We read right away on day one, arise, shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Guys, it was this idea of like one of those huge spotlights being on Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, the spotlight coming up out of the new Jerusalem, out of the new city of David. And in Revelation, it even says that the sun won't even be needed because of the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Guys, we already saw a hint of this in chapter six, didn't we? In the throne room, when the seraphim, which means something like the bright ones, those six winged creatures, ironically had to shield their face, the bright ones shielding their face, from the brightness of the glory of the Lord. This is a culmination from that moment, way at the beginning of the Bible, when God said, let there be light. That's our God. He says, let there be light all the way through the story of the Bible to the moment when the light of the world shows up as the very embodiment of God's glory. We saw that in the theme of glory. How about the theme of king or of royalty? So in the dark days, guys, what do we see? That these foreign kings are ruling over God's children, that their foot is on the neck of God's children. They're breathing down the neck. They're ready to deport them. But what did we see in the happy ending, guys? We actually saw that kings and nations will minister to the children of God. They will be serving in the new Jerusalem. It says that nations shall come to your light. Their kings shall minister to you. It said in chapter 60, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. Guys, did you just love this moment when we realized that here we have kings from the east caravans of camels, once again, bringing gold and frankincense. Once again, kings being drawn to brightness like a star. Kings being drawn to the glory of the Lord. And we see a beautiful culmination of our nativity scene. How about this tree theme? You were hoping I'd talk about trees again tonight. The irony about me talking about trees so much is that I can't grow a plant to save my life. I, I mean, I guess I haven't ever tried to grow a tree from, a, is the word sapling? I don't know, 
whatever. I can't grow anything. So it feels, you know, like when Jeff talks about trees, you know that he has the right to talk about it because he's a gardener or whatever. I was just in the Dodgers backyard. I'm like, oh, he has a right to use the tree theme in any of sermons. I'm a poser. I'm such a poser. I can't grow anything. I'm sitting at my desk today and I kid you not, I'm like sitting there working on this and I look at my like potted plant, which is not looking good, whatever. Guys, a mushroom popped up in my potted plant overnight. I don't understand that at all. Like, what are you supposed, how did it happen? And he's like this big overnight. He just popped up and I assume that's bad. It's probably bad. So we're going to talk about trees one more time and then we'll be done. I promise. I'll I'll have to earn it if I ever want to come back to this, this theme. But I do hope that it helped you through the book of Isaiah. Where do we see the culmination of this theme? Guys, what do we see from this summit? Okay, from Isaiah 6, guys, we saw that throne room. Well, in our text this week, we saw that the throne room is now an entire city. And we saw that the city is actually an entire garden. And we have seen that this city garden now encompasses all of the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, what this is saying is that Eden will be everywhere. But not just the Eden that's talked about in one through three, but an Eden that is more in full bloom. That's why Nancy Guthrie talks about is the Eden of Genesis one and two is like a a garden that has not yet reached its full potential. But here, when the new heavens and the new earth come, it's a garden in full bloom. So what that means is that the promises about the root of Jesse have come true. The promises that we over and over again, we were worried, oh my goodness, have they been forfeited? Have the people of God rebelled for too long? Is God too angry that the promises have been forfeited? Here we find that the root of Jesse, the promise that there will be a forever king from David's family, that will remain. That promise remains. And in fact, that little sprig of hope it has grown and it's grown into an entire tree the tree of life and we read that this tree is actually so mature and so prominent that it encompasses both sides of this river and it's cutting through the city and maybe for a moment we connected that much like the coal in Isaiah's vision we see that this tree brings cleansing and healing of sin as we read that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. What kind of healing? This is why we referred to the bleeding woman over and over again, much more than a healing of circumstances, much more than a healing from some bodily sickness. The sin that is being healed by the tree of life is the sin, is the the sickness that comes from sin. Not a mere injury from sin, but a widespread disease. Remember in chapter one, this was the description that the people of God, because of their sin, were battered from head to foot, battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds. Guys, do we see here how God's promise in those bleak days of exile has remained as that root of Jesse has grown up and brought healing to our sin problem. 
And because of that, guys, we who would otherwise be that cut down stump, kind of that mowed down tree, experiencing the weight of our sin. Now, who are we? We are the people who have found redemption and restoration. We are the people who are now the branch of his planting. And we connected the dots that when we read that Jesus is that tree, that we are the branches, maybe John 15 came to our mind. And maybe we kind of catch our breath from, oh, this intense Isaiah stuff that's not familiar to us. We realize that it's led us to something probably way more familiar where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not the hopeless stumps, no matter our sin. We are not the mowed down, burnt stumps. Far from that, what were we called this week? An oak of righteousness. And we ask the question, how is that even possible? How can we be called righteous? The answer was in John 15. Our application, our instruction is to abide. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. You want to be an oak of righteousness? He doesn't list out 20 bullet points on how you need to be superwoman in all of these ways. But the Bible teaches the Bible as it instructs us to cling to the vine that is holding on to you. One of the surprising applications from, from this study for me came, I, I think comes from this moment when I actually realized that the good news for me in this moment is that I don't have to be the hero of the story. I think with all of our different personalities in this room, that that could kind of land differently for, for everyone. But I, I would venture to say that we could all relate with that. Sometimes I put myself in the place of like Isaiah. <laughs> I put myself in the place of, of the prophet or the person who's working for God. I naturally um, resonate with the one who I think is going to be the game changer in these situations in the stories of the Bible. But right away in the story of the throne room, guys, we see that this story isn't about Isaiah, ironically, but it's about God who is on his throne. And then much the same, my life, <laughs> I'm not the main story, much less the hero. And what sounds like bad news at first actually injects a whole lot of life in me. Because if I'm the, the main hero, if I'm the main character, guys, instead of God, what happens then is that I have to stay in the spotlight. And what happens when I'm in the spotlight is there's a whole lot more sins that can entangle me. And there's a whole lot more pressure that I was not made to bear. So maybe attached to our application at this point is actually an opportunity for relief for us to get rid once again of that pressure, to get rid of that lies, 
that it's about us or that the show must go on, that we have to keep spinning on the plates, that we have to keep everything afloat, that we have to attain this level of perfection at work or in relationships. And we just exhale and we hear, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Let my word abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are not the hero. We are the oaks of righteousness. Guys, the only way that that is true, that we can be called righteous, it's not because we prove ourselves as Christians. It's not because our good days outweigh our bad. It's because Jesus has given his righteousness to us. As we have seen throughout this study, the surprising moment time after time, that Jesus shares what is his with his children. His righteousness. He gives us his righteousness as he provides atonement for us. Because there's even one more level of application here. Still kind of along this idea of contrast, guys. I was thinking back again about that discipline of the first half of the book with the ax. And we talked about how the ax was just, just whacking away at the people, right? Just indiscriminately, just knocking down the people of God. That's what the judgment, that's what the discipline of God's children felt like at that time. Is that what his discipline feels like now? For those of us who are in Christ, I think that's a question to ask. Is that picture from Isaiah the one that I'm supposed to be relating with right now? When life is hard, when expectations aren't met, when I feel like I'm getting the tar beat out of me, is that because God is disciplining me in that same way that the children of Israel were disciplined. And in contrast, I gladly say no, because what we find in Hebrews and the New Testament is that the way that God disciplines us is much more like a surgeon's tool. And we actually read that it is the word of God, much like a, an exact scalpel that comes in and it divides all the way down to dividing joint and marrow. Can you divide joint and marrow with an ax? No, but you need this tool of precision. Think of the difference between a lumberjack. We all know a lumberjack, right? Actually, our church does have one lumberjack, Pete Keegan. So if you know him, picture him right now. So what is the difference between a big old ax and this tiny, instrument that a surgeon would hold. Think of how delicate that surgeon's touch is. Think of how specific it is. And think of what it says in Hebrews, that it will divide between two different kinds of tissue. The context of this part of Hebrews is actually talking about the difference between faith and unbelief. So guys, on this side of the cross, we don't have to fear a cut down like an ax, but we are invited to bravely lean in when our heavenly father wants to divide what is from faith and what is from unbelief in our life. And we notice that that surgeon's hand, that touch is for our good 
And we know that while it hurts and while we have to be patient with it, it brings healing and it brings newness. It brings purity. Because of Christ, because Christ took that judgment for us, our discipline now as Christians is very different. So here's our question, our second question. Can we believe that there's more goodness ahead on the other side of discipline? Okay, our first question was, can we believe that there is more goodness on the other side of confession and repentance? And now we're saying, can we believe, can we have the faith to believe that there's more goodness ahead on the other side of God's paternal loving discipline? The way that we answer those questions, guys, will greatly change our behavior. If we believe that there's more goodness on the other side of God's hand of discipline, man, when hardship comes, we lean in rather than stiff arm them. When we're convicted of our sin, when our eyes are open, maybe when our blind spots are removed and we realize, oh my word, I have a habitual sin in my life. I have a pet sin. I have an addiction. I have a secret. We lean in if we believe that there is more goodness ahead on the other side of that discipline. Go with me one more view. Here we are, we're at the summit, we're taking in this panoramic view of seeing how good it's gonna be when King Jesus brings the new heavens and the new earth. Let's look at this theme of exile. Behold, look, ladies, look at this. Look as this vision comes into view. How were those cities described back in exile? They were barren. They were empty. But as we went through this text and we started to see the list of everyone that was coming in to the city of God and to the new city of David, we did not get the idea of barrenness or emptiness. We got this idea of abundance and fullness brimming over a bounty. It was jam-packed. Guys, this idea, are you picturing it? That the multitudes are streaming in. Are you picturing caravans marching in? It's a, it's a procession as far as the eyes can see. Do you guys see what this is? This is the reversal of the exile right here. This is not a somber march away from home like in Isaiah's days. What we read this week is actually the greater exodus. It is a joyful return home. This is the homecoming for the children of God. This is their return home. This is what we see in this panoramic and it's breathtaking, guys. And we read, we read this description, guys. I just, I want to slow down and just look at this as we start to close here, guys. In chapter 60, read, just listen as I, I read this for a second. Now that you have this image in your mind, 
Foreigners shall build up your walls. Their kings shall minister to you. Your gates shall be open. Day and night, they will not be shut. This idea of safety that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations. How many times do we see that word nations? For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. I will make the place that might be glorious. You shall be called the city of the Lord. Lift up your eyes and see. Okay, guys, listen to this. Lift up your eyes and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea that shall be turned to you. This is so poetic, guys. But here's where this becomes real life. Here's where this strengthens our faith, guys. When I read this for the first time, your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hips. And I'm picturing what Isaiah is trying to poetically say here. I had the most vivid image of my very good friend, Maria. And so many Sundays when I'm here in the foyer and it's just full and it's my favorite time of the week and it's packed and it's abundance and it's anything but barren and empty. I see my friend Maria walk into our foyer with her family. Maria's story has been shared a time or two. So I will just give you a couple details, but Maria's story starts with barrenness. Maria's story has years of an empty womb. And then Maria's story would get even harder as there would be loss and then harder but yet good at the same time as they brought home four adopted kids from Africa. And then more hiccups and more barrenness. And then a surprise pregnancy. And out comes the most redheaded little boy you've ever seen. And then more hard years and more mysterious works of God. And then another very redheaded little boy. Guys, this is what this image painted to me. They walk in the foyer. This story that was once a story of barrenness and emptiness. And because of the beautiful contrast, even in skin color, I see the nations coming in to the house of God. And there's this line, one of the versions says, your baby shall be carried on the hips of the nannies. Your daughter shall be carried on the hips. And so often one of Maria's daughters has their, her very large redheaded babies on their tiny hips. And they've got to get their hips. You guys, if you've seen them, you know this, right? They get their hips all the way out there and they're holding this fair-skinned ginger. And it's beautiful. And then in comes Maria. And her heart thrills and exults at what God has done for her. She is living in the already not yet. 
And she is holding on to the hope that Isaiah has given to us. These chapters are our future hope. But because of Jesus, so many of them have already started to become true in our life. Whatever version of barrenness you feel, whatever part of your life feels void and empty, maybe unmet, there is a promise for you that that barrenness will not last. Because everything about this procession says abundance. Everything about this view of this caravan and of these multitudes coming in to the new city of God, to the complete, to the restored, the redeemed city of God says that God's promises will be true to you. And it changes how we live today. So take in that panoramic. Take in from Isaiah's words or or words or take in from somebody that you see around you who is living that out and take it in guys. This is what I picture guys. When I think of this day, when the new heavens and the new earth come and our hope is fully realized, I picture this image of God and maybe he is standing at the gate that we read is called praise. As the nations who have been sprinkled by the conquering lamb march in to their home. Maybe the the Lord is there welcoming at the walls that are aptly named salvation, or maybe he is running down the road to meet the prodigals. As these children march in, perhaps the king himself, perhaps the suffering servant himself is there handing out headdresses, beautiful headdresses to replace ashes. Maybe the anointed one will himself anoint you with the oil of gladness as he wipes away your final tear. And maybe he will hand you and hand me a garment, a a splendid piece of clothes or our Sunday best to exchange for our despair and our hopelessness. What a view Isaiah has given us. Ladies, we can believe that there is more goodness ahead. And therefore, we have hope. And so what we do is we get our faith up on tiptoes. As we live with our eyes on the God who is seated on the throne. And we hear him say to us, comfort, my daughter, comfort. And as we wait for it, guys, what we do is we remain in awe. We remain in awe of the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself through your word. 
Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the vine and we are the branch. Father, you are holding on to us. May we cling back as a response. So Lord, lead us into more faith. Lead us into belief. Help us with our unbelief. Lead us into confession and repentance. And help us to lean in to times of discipline with our eyes fixed on you. Father, we are a loved group of women because you are a God of justice and mercy.